Yeah. Sometimes we laugh and sometimes we cry, but I guess you know now. Baby. I took a half and she took the whole thing. Slow down. Baby. We took a trip, now we on your block and it's like a ghost town. Baby. Where did these niggas be at when they said they doing all this and all that? I'm back better than ever. Yes, this is Bread of Soul 7, I believe, or 6. It could be one of those two. I don't know yet. Don't come at me for that, okay? I don't know. But we're back. We've been a little month off, rebranding. Now we're back at it. You know, school came in the way a little bit, but I'm just glad we're here. We're doing bigger things and better things. And I have a really, 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 really dope guest in our podcast today. And this person is close to me personally, but she's also important in terms of black activism, important in our family, important in L.A., important in downtown L.A., anywhere in L.A., people know about her. So... I don't have to do the introductions. She could do it. Who are you? Wow. Hey, Noah. Well, first off, I'm your Nana. Let's never forget that or underscore that or fail to underscore it. My name is Trudy Goodwin. I'm a black woman who identifies as she, her, Mama True. All of those are my pronouns. I'm a writer, healer, organizer, Black Panther, mother, grandmother, and a long, long line of folks that are warriors for Black liberation. Look at that. What? Ooh, she cold with it. Hey, hey, this is going to be my first woman on this podcast. Hands down, I already knew she was going to be the first woman. I needed someone that was just dope, strong, independent, black, and always here for black empowerment and black liberation. So I'm glad that she's here in this podcast today. We're going to get it started off with some light, you know, some chill. The first question is, what inspired you to fight for black rights? How old were you when all that, you know, transpired? You know, I uh, I said after reading these questions that you had uh, proposed to me that these are some of the most thought-provoking questions I've had. Um, and um, this first question of what inspired you to fight for black rights, I initially started out lifting up the memory of my mother who was a civil rights activist of the 60s. And, uh, of course, now we call that movement the social justice movement of today. Fortunately for me, my parents were different. My grandparents were different. They were pro-black people, and they, they did not encourage us to assimilate. I, I just thought of that today. My mom was never an assimilationist. She believed that black folks were powerful 
and and ready to go and vibrant and strong in their own right and did not need to be like white people to be of value. We brought value with us. And thank God I had the type of parent that would sit me down at the dining room table at different times throughout the year and hand me books about Frederick Douglass and Harriet Bethune, and uh, I mean Harriet Tubman and uh, Mary McLeod Bethune. And she would talk to us about what they did in their lives to make our lives as rich as it was, and also to encourage us to pick up that mantle, to pick up that torch and continue in that fight for liberation. So the first person I would lift up is my mom because she hit the streets of Los Angeles with a vengeance for civil rights for black folks. She got arrested for sitting on some people's lawn out in Torrance because they would not allow black folks to buy homes in Torrance. So they had sit-ins. We hear about the sit-ins back in Greensboro, North Carolina, and Mississippi, Alabama, but we had sit-ins right here in Los Angeles County with folks going to jail because they wanted to make a point that just because we weren't in the South did not mean that we were not uh, affected by Jim Crowism. So, you know, she started, I mean, when I think about my mom, I think about the the different groups that she belonged to. One of them, get this, Noah, the name of the group was Stop Police Brutality. This was a group that my mom was a member of in the 60s. And here we are today in 2021 talking about what? Stop Police Brutality. There is something very sick and very wrong if we are fighting for for black folks to be treated with dignity and just allowed to live 60-some years later. Mm -hmm. So my mom was part of that initial movement. She was also uh, part of an organization um, called uh, Collective Government. And what they did was to find candidates to run for city council, for uh, the Los Angeles uh, County Board of Supervisors, and other positions like that of leadership. They Mm. were the ones that got Tom Bradley elected as the first black mayor of Los Angeles. So these were some heavy-ass black folks that were teachers, attorneys, working class folks, all of them pulling together to make sure that black folks were not only protected, but were thriving and moving ahead. Dang. So you, you was basically born into it. It it was, (laughs) it wasn't like, Oh, I was this age, you know, something happened to me. It was like, my, my family was always like this. So shit, I came out the womb already, already for black liberation. So, that's, That's real right there. So you talked about the influence about your mom, my great grandma, God rest his soul. Uh, talk about your dad a little bit. How how important was he 
in your, you know, development? Yeah, that that's a that's a critical piece there because while my dad wasn't part of the civil rights movement, he was totally woke and conscious. This was not one of these, you know, he was a writer for Hollywood, but this was not someone who was, you know, totally enamored by the Hollywood lights. They came to him at one point and said, we have this television show that we just, you know, that we started up. We want you to write for us. It's a story about a man and his wife and their kids, and they live in the ghetto, and you'd be writing about their struggles and blah, blah, blah. And my dad said, wait a minute, so let me get this right. You got a brother who lives in the ghetto who works every day, his wife is a housekeeper. She works every day. They live in the projects with three kids, and they struggling, scratching and surviving, and the name of this show is Good Times? Nah, man, I don't think I'm going to be writing for no show mm-hmm. that shows this much oppression of black people shucking and jiving and calling it Good Times. So, uh my dad went on to write a full-length movie called Black Chariot. It's being uh, uh, it's being saved and uh, re- refinished or refurbished by the Smithsonian, and this was an homage to the Black Panther Party. Mm. So it was all about these Black liberation leaders that were out there fighting for their freedom. Um, and, you know, and we're just really proud of the type of work that he did do, you mm-hmm. know. So most of his work came out through his films. But, Noah, you said something really important that I just want to touch on. You said you've been doing this ever since you came out of the womb, just about. Mm-hmm. Well, when I think about what I found out about our family in, you know, past history, I realized that this is our legacy. Mm-hmm. We have been nothing but a family of freedom fighters from day one. Mm-hmm. Look, so on the west coast of Africa, you got all of these Africans that are fighting their neighbors and throwing each other under the bus to Europeans in order to get guns and alcohol and, and move ahead and get more land and all. This little tribe that our folks came from, called the Dajolas, mm. were farm were uh, were uh, fisher people, and they lived near the ocean. So they were some of the first people in their area that saw these Europeans coming over on boats. When the Europeans contacted them, they asked they asked these little Dajola people. Who are your leader? Take us to your leader. Because that's how they made inroads into these different villages and got them fighting amongst themselves. Mm. Well, this particular tribe was communist. No, not communist in the, you know, the yeah. sense of the word that we use now. But they had no leadership. Mm. Everybody was a leader. So they didn't even know what the what these fools were talking about when they were talking Damn. about take us to your leader, they're like, here you go. And when they saw that these folks, they felt that these Europeans were not there to help them, 
They packed up everybody in that area and moved them up into the mountains. Wow. It took them it took it took the Europeans over 20 some years to track them down in the mountains and 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 uh force them onto boats. So I guess you can say that from the very beginning <laughs> our family has been fighting for liberation. Damn. I didn't, I didn't even know that. Wow. I'm I'm learning stuff in my podcast about my family. Look at that. That's real right there. That's dope. Um so you said so I don't know if if I caught this wrong, but they offered your dad good times and he said no. I mean that, that that's not a problem, but I was like, wow. So yeah. that's how big he was in Hollywood. Yeah. Shoot, dang. He was the first black writer for for uh for film. Wow. But so but let me just let me just sort of add this on to that. So you got my mom who's out there in the street yelling and screaming, going to jail for for civil rights. You got my dad in Hollywood making films to show black folks in the best light possible mm-hmm. and to also show folks what we're up against, you know, mm-hmm. in terms of oppression. But the question then comes, where, who influenced these people? Yeah. You know, can we do that just for a second? Mm-hmm. So with Grace, your great-grandma... She comes from this family of activists, one of which was her mother's first cousin, who was like this big-time farmer in Texas. They called him the Watermelon King because, yeah, he he grew more watermelons than anybody in that area, Mm -hmm. right? The one He founded the NAACP, which during that time, was a death sentence because they'd hang you for being involved in an, an organization that because it was militant at that time. Mm-hmm. The it's nothing. The NAACP of the forties and the fifties was nothing like what you see today. This watered down version that you know gets all the corporate funding and shit and doesn't do shit for the people. Mm-hmm. Back then, these people were out on the on the firing lines taking cases into court, suing people for their rights. They were a strong group. So this cousin of ours um, not only fought for the black farmers and saying, no, this, this stuff is not equal, we need equal rights for farmers, but he also took on the state of Texas in, in their denying black people the right to vote in the primaries, mm. they could vote in the general elections, mm-hmm. but it's like the primaries is where it happens. Yeah, this is where folks could have got Bernie Sanders in, right? Mm-hmm. If enough people had voted for him in the primaries, blacks were not allowed in Texas to vote in the primaries, and so he took this case, ran it through the Texas courts. They denied him the right. You know, they denied them. The, the ability to vote him and six other gentlemen from from Texas black gentlemen took it to the Supreme Court wow and won so this was the beginning of this of the civil rights movement and this march towards voter registration this is one of the first this is what folks 
pinned their hopes on when they when they went to get the voting rights for folks in Alabama, Mississippi, and so forth. Wow. So, um, yeah, Willie Milton, badass nigga in Texas. <laughs> you know, uh, but I'll, I'll, I'll leave it at that. My dad had some, some pretty crucial people, too, on his side of the family. Y'all heading out for Vegas. I hope y'all stop by this subsection of Vegas called Berkeley Square, which was named for our family. My grandmother was a Berkeley. Mm-hmm. Her uncle is the one. No, I'm sorry. Her brother is the one that helped develop this area in Nevada, in Las Vegas, called Berkeley Square. It was the first settlement of black people in Nevada. And wow. at the time, they didn't have any blacks living there. Mm-hmm. But because work came to Nevada that they wanted blacks to to do, mm-hmm. he, he and Paul Williams, who is the first black architect of, of, uh, um, of America, developed this area of 148 homes for black families. And his, his life was dedicated to civil rights and making, making things equal for black folks. Sheesh. It's a risk history behind you. Behind me? Yeah. No, man. <laughs> That's a rich, rich history behind you, Noah Gordon. Hey, hey. I'm, a, I'm just a humble servant right now. <laughs> <laughs> so you're still fighting today. Okay. You know, you've been you've been fighting, you know, since I'm not I'm not going to say what years you were born, but, you know, you was fighting since you came out the womb. So how was it trying to maintain your responsibilities of life, but also fighting for, you know, black liberation? Like how how was that? You know, because, you know, you don't get paid for it. That's 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 another life that you have. Like, yeah, how are you maintaining your lifestyle, but also fighting for black liberation? You know, that that to me was the most crucial question that you asked. I've never had anyone uh, lift that question up. And it's probably the most important question anyone could ask mm-hmm. a liberation fighter. How do you make, how do you work this life thing and keep this liberation fight going? Mm-hmm. Well, as you probably know, and as most of your listeners probably know, we've had a lot of folks from the Black Power Movement move into municipal, state, county, federal government positions thinking that they could change the system from within, Mm -hmm. right? So that was the... That was the uh, road that I took, that your uh, grandpa Sterling took, and so many of our friends. We went into government thinking that we would be able to change the way that things were done if we were there. Mm -hmm. If we have a seat at the table, then we can change things. Mm -hmm. We spent most of our time trying to be clandestine about the activities that we were involved in because we would get fired 
if the government ever knew how, and all we were doing wasn't like we were doing anything illegal. And if we were, it was because they put us in a position where the only way we were going to be able to get free was if we did something illegal. You, you, You know, so what we found was most of the time we were working within the system in a very quiet way to get things changed for black folks that were in the community. And then juxtaposed to that, you got black folks in the community that are looking at us like we sellouts because we're working for the government, not connecting the dots at all. Well, if she was in the Panther Party, why would she go to work for the government? Mm. Or even stop to ask me, how'd you find yourself, you know, doing this? So that I could tell them, if what you're trying to do is make sure that there is a, a summer program for youth to get youth employed, or that there are jobs that are coming into the city, and we want to make sure black folks get those jobs, who you think is going to be up there pushing for that? It damn sure ain't going to be your oppressor. Mm-hmm. So, you know, in ways, it was this, you were fighting a battle on both sides. But that, I, I have to tell you, that was some of the rich, richest experiences I've had in my life. Mm-hmm. Because I can truly say that I saw me, your granddad, your granddad is the reason that there's a... Uh, a cultural arts center in Watts. Mm-hmm. He, along with, of course, other folks that, that lived and worked in Watts, he's from Watts, but along with those folks, they were able to put through this design as, as an urban planner and an artist. They were able to put together a design for the community arts center that is there today. Wow. Each answer, I'm like in in awe right now. This is this is amazing right here. This is rich right here. I'm loving it. So you mentioned that you're in the Black Panther Party. How how did you get connected with them? Like what was what were the uh, the circumstances you had to go through? What how did you see them? What was like what got you interested? What was the the whole journey like? Yeah, that's uh, that you know in a way that feels like yesterday, and another way it feels like eons away from from today um we i i was part of the generation that felt as if the civil rights movement wasn't going anywhere it was too tame they were constantly talking about nonviolence they was constantly talking about you know it's going to take a long time well when you young you 18 19 20 you like i want mine now Mm-hmm. I want my freedom and my liberation for my brothers and sisters today, right? Mm-hmm. So you had these groups that were cropping up. Some of them started out being nonviolent, like the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, who we saw H. Rap Brown come out of and Stokely Carmichael come out and Fatty Lou Hamer come out, come out of. And some of these folks were like... Uh, no, nah, man, 
We are going to be in their face 24-7 until freedom comes. Mm. We're just not going to back down, and we're not going to play nice, and we're not going to be peaceful. If we need to tear some shit up, that's what we're going to do. Mm. And I was like, well, that sounds like my type of <laughs> folks to hang out with, right? So, um, yeah, they were calling for a more aggressive response to racism and anti-blackness. So I found this little organization out in Compton called the Malcolm X Foundation. It was a small little storefront, but had all kinds of black folks from Compton coming through there. And what we were doing was working to make Compton, even though Compton at that time was like half and half black and white, we wanted to make sure that the businesses and the people were treated with respect mm. in that town. So I started off there. And then one evening, as we were sitting inside of the building having a meeting, these brothers and probably some sisters walked in with leather coats and black berets and filled up the room, and I was like, Damn. <laughs> what is this, right? Yeah. And it's like it was the Black Panthers. And they came in talking their rhetoric, you know, about uh it ain't safe for crackers nowhere. It mm. is not safe for these pigs nowhere to be shooting us and then hiding behind our nonviolence. We're going to carry guns. And um, shoot back, basically. And I was like, I, I mean, it was like I had seen the promised land, right? Mm, yeah. <laughs> and then one of our family members who was a young, beautiful, kind, loving man got caught up uh, with the police in L.A., the... Uh, the, uh, the man that owned the gas station where the police pulled Steve over said that Steve had raised his hands above his head and said that he was unarmed, and they shot and killed him anyway. Mm. Well, Steve was a member of the Black Panther Party. Wow. And that's what it took to get me in the party, knowing that they had killed someone that was a friend of my family's because all of us knew him, mm -hmm. and... Here you have this Asian shopkeeper on TV crying that he was he was there. I saw him. He raised his hands. He said he did not have a weapon, and they gunned him down anyway. That's wow. what it took for me to get involved. Wow. And what year was that? Um, 69. 69. Dang. Yeah, 68, 69. That's when. Yeah. When she was around, yeah, 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 yeah. When, yeah. <laughs> when your daughter was born, so exactly, dang. So you had a daughter and being part of the BPP, exactly, BPP, right? Wow, yeah, yeah. Tar was born right around the time of John Huggins, uh, uh child was born. Wow, yeah. mm -hmm. dang. So, who are some people you looked up to, you know? And your oh, it could be in like man. your chapter, you know, or you know area, or yeah, you know or worldwide, the, you know. Yeah, Black Panther Party was was massive. So yeah, it was not. Yeah, it was not small. The majority of my contact was with the Panthers in L.A. and the Panthers in Oakland. 
because we would drive from L.A. up to Oakland to support them in actions and vice versa. They had come down here. Mm -hmm. So I didn't know of the different personalities like uh, Chairman Fred, God rest his soul, who has now become like this beacon, this guide in my life. But at the time, we weren't familiar. I was not familiar with the workings of the Chicago or New York chapters. But the folks that I loved the most in the party were starting off with John Huggins, who was my ride-to-die organizer. John and I were a team. They would put us out on a corner, and we'd be passing out the Panther newspapers and talking to people about getting free. And his wife, Erica, who is even today still a part of the Panther Party, and she's all into making, you know, being a healer and helping black folks get healed. Uh, Bunchy Carter, mm-hmm. who, uh, you know, these are folks, these aren't just sort of names to me. These John and, and Erica lived in the same house with me when I was in the in the party. So, mm-hmm. And Erica and I worked in the office together, and John and I out in the field. And Bunchy was sort of like low-key the leader of the L.A. chapter, even though he did not claim it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, as a matter of fact, they had another front man that they put out there, you know, as the leader of the L.A. chapter. But it was Bunchy who ran things. Mm-hmm. And this is one of the most uh, adorable, loving, kind individuals. See, I don't know these folks that so many people are talking about, you know, well, they were hardcore and they were, well, they had to be hardcore I would imagine if they was out there fighting these pigs that was taking our lives. But when it came to how they addressed the sisters, how they addressed the the brothers that was in the party, it was always through love. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's all I saw. And I was young. I was young at the time, and I was all vibrant and flippy, and they were just like, that's our baby sister. Come on, Trudy. You know, and it was wow. just... A very loving uh, relationship. Chairman Bobby, Bobby Seals was one of, I mean, this is a man who didn't have the type of education like Huey Newton and Mm. Eldridge Cleaver and um, um, Emory Douglas. I don't believe that Bobby had gone to school during that time. He was a bus driver, but wise, absolutely wise real quiet, soft voice, and just there for you, you know, just, so, uh, yeah, them and Emery Douglas, who is like one of the, still one of the baddest ass artists we have seen to date, Mm. and then my boys from Compton and Watts, Ronnie and Donnie Freeman, they were twins, right, yeah, yeah, I mean, this is a name I want y'all to remember, because these were local hometown boys who went from the Malcolm X Foundation with me into the Panther Party. Mm. And and they were ride to die. They were there for you. So I would say that those are my folks. Wow. And you and you knew all of them personally? Oh, uh, yeah. Like people, you know, like Bobby Seal, Bunchy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, yeah. you told me, you know, I just want the world to know. I, I know but you and Bunchy were like this. That was That's my, cool. Yeah. yeah. That, was my, that was my boy. Rest his soul. Rest yes. his soul. Yes. Man, Wow. 
And, you know, uh, tell us some of your favorite experiences, you know, that you could, you know, say on the podcast, you feel me? But, you know, what was your favorite experiences in the Black Panther Party? Well, I mean, anytime we had an action, I tell you one of my favorite was when we had an action in L.A. and we looked up and here off in the distance comes these men in brown khaki pants, brown shirts, and brown berets. And we like, who are these fools, right? Yeah. We didn't know that Bunchy and them had invited the Brown Berets, the Chicano brothers from East L.A., to join us in this action. Wow. So just having those two groups together meet up powerful. was a very powerful experience. Dang. And then uh, at that same event, we look up in this real tall, dark-skinned brother with this big old smile comes through and he's shaking everybody's hand and we're like, oh my God, it's Stokely. Stokely had become a member of the Black Panther Party. We didn't, you know, the line folks didn't know it. Only the, you know, the higher ups knew that he had. And mm-hmm. he spoke to us that day about liberation. So that's probably uh, my most fondest memory. Can you but give us I, a background who Stokely is? You know Stokely Carmichael. Kwame Toure was the name that he chose before he died. Started off as a member of the Student uh, Nonviolent Coordinating Committee. And, you know, they were all friends with King and all the rest of the civil rights movers and shakers. But Stokely got tired of how slowly the movement was taking off Mm -hmm. and how folks were not taking us seriously. And he became more aggressive in his work yeah and you know i mean he became a an, a household name as a civil rights liberation black power movement person h rap brown is somebody else we have to lift up that that name is the first name I wore on a button when I was in high school to show people. I mean, as if my afro wasn't enough to let them know what <laughs> side I was on. He said, whose side are you on? Yes, look at this afro. You can just call it out yourself. But I had a HRF brown button on, uh, uh, on, my, on my shirt because HRF brown is the one that coined the phrase black power. So anytime you hear anybody throwing up a fist talking about black power, that came from H. Rat Brown. He was also part of the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, better known as SNCC. And he, too, left SNCC because he wanted more aggressive change Mm -hmm. for black folks. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I do want to say this, because we are in our movement today. We are in dire straits, and I saw this in the 60s between organizations that were working with one another, and, you know, they were brothers and sisters, and all of a sudden, all of this petty bickering and not-so-petty bickering divided them, and to this day, they are divided. And I see this in our movements now. 
um, you know, folks calling out BLM for uh, their practices of, you know, um, as as some folks see it, not being transparent with the donations that they get and taking these money deals with Cadillac and, um, you know, other corporations. And I see... I see us drifting apart or being pulled apart in these different directions. And what is most important is that we realize that we are some deep, intelligent, wise motherfuckers that can figure out anything we need to figure out. We don't need all this separation. Because that's exactly one of the major causes of the downfall of the Black Panther movement, the Black Power movement of the 60s and the 70s, was all this, you know, isolation and people fighting against. We just don't need to do that. Mm -hmm. We're too damn smart. That's sort of like allowing the damn uh, folks from Europe to come into Africa, divide up Africa, and set one village against another. Yeah. Have we not learned anything from that? Mm. So that's that's what's breaking my heart today and looking at this movement, remembering how it was in the 60s when that happened then. And, you know, one of the questions that you asked, and I don't want to move away from it, you haven't asked it yet, but it's here. Uh what do I what reasons did the Black Panther Party not pan out? Um, what do I think the reason was? I think the reason was infiltration by the FBI, CIA, and other offices of law enforcement. That's number one was all of the pigs that were inside of our movement. And number two was black folks just not realizing the effect that these, you know, ABC characters were were having on us and how they, too, promoted this division between us and other organizations we were working with. Wow. Because I I asked that question. Uh, because I had a conversation with someone and he was like, yeah, informants ruined the Black Panther Party. I was like, we also got to take consideration that, you know, there was also the crack epidemic too, that, you know, they were putting crack in our streets. You know, I was saying that, like, that could have messed something up too. And he was like, yeah. He was kind of like putting it off to the side, like that wasn't like a factor too. I was like, well, you know, when I I talked to my grandma – we're going to yeah. see. And, you know, yeah. you, you said it, you said it perfectly, you know, the FBI and the CIA really infiltrated the Black Panther Party. And that could have been many ways, you know, having informants, yeah. drugs, like all that, you know. Well, you know, the, the crack ha- epidemic, Noah, didn't come along really until the 80s, 90s. Mm-hmm. The first thing they did was to move oh, to dismantle all of our economic base. Mm -hmm. So they went out into the South Bay, closed down McDonnell Douglas, closed down General, uh, I forgot what it's called now, but all of these different plants that made weapons 
and made uh, airplanes. So the mm-hmm. aerodynamic uh, industry was totally shut down. Now, I want you to think about it. The reason that blacks had accumulated so much wealth between the 60s and the 70s and 80s was because we had all these good jobs. Mm-hmm. Back east, it was the, the steel mills. It was the car manufacturers. You know, all the way across America, you had blacks working in industry that paid them because they were union jobs, mm-hmm. paid them a damn good salary. So they were able to buy nice cars, homes in Compton, homes in, in on the east side of L.A., uh, you know, homes in Chicago, homes in Brooklyn. All across America, we were thriving. So our, our moms and dads would work really hard during the summer. They'd pack up everybody in that new caddy, and we'd take a trip to see our relatives down south in Texas, in mm-hmm. Alabama, and Mississippi. We were able to put our kids in college because we had the money to make sure that we backed them, right? Mm-hmm. They took that all of those jobs from underneath us, boom, almost like overnight they shipped them overseas or they put robots in there to do it. Mm. So you got all of these black folks with no money and responsibilities, or they would bring in migrant workers who were willing to do the work for not even half the salary with no breaks no bathrooms, no mm-hmm. none of the none of the security that belonging to a union had afforded black folks. So black folks are just totally out of work. Yeah. Then it's easy if you got a black man and a woman who are suffering to bring in drugs to numb their pain. So that's what they did from New York to Seattle. If you had a black community, They took away the jobs, they brought in the drugs, and then in order to keep that going, they brought in guns. That's how it went down. That's how the, and then they're going to call war, declare war on us, talking about this is war on drugs. No, this is war on black folks because Mm -hmm. you're the one that's developed this new system that ain't nothing but demonic. You have to have a demonic mind. You have to be demon-like yeah, to kill off a person's hopes and dreams and replace it with drugs and guns. So, yeah. That was, that. that's deep. And that's why I asked that in the beginning, you know, main response, like what was, your, like how was it, you know, balancing? Because, you know, as in, in terms of history, Black people never had the proper job. Now, I didn't know that from the 60s to 80s. We had good jobs. So it was just like, dang, you know, when you just take all that from us, it's like, you know, it's like the hope is gone. Yeah. So it, it, it's, it's, it's real tough. Yeah. Um, yeah. Thank you for enlightening us with that information. You know, that was, that was definitely deep and real. Oh. So now everything like that has changed. Mm-hmm. You said that. Um, crack epidemic, you know. 
now let's bring back, you know, Rodney King, all that other stuff. Things are getting back and popping in terms of protesting. What do you feel like, you know, now it's 2021. Stuff that happened last summer, you know, it was crazy. Ahmaud Aubrey, Breonna Taylor, uh, George Floyd, all that happened. What do you, f- like, do you feel like anything has changed in terms of, you know, black liberation, protesting, any of that nature? Yeah, I do. Um, I don't think it's unlike what the change that happened in the 60s and 70s that brought about good jobs and people getting into college and living in decent neighborhoods and all of that. That's what that whole civil rights black power movement did for us. Let's not forget when people get to talking about how the civil rights movement failed black people and black power um Black Power Movement failed black people. Let's just keep in mind, we wouldn't have had shit without them two factors moving this country forward. Mm-hmm. It just wouldn't have happened, right? So I see a lot of that energy now within young people today. And understand, anytime there's a movement anywhere, South Africa, Venezuela, uh, Egypt, it's led by young people mm-hmm. like y'all's age, right? That are out there saying, we fed up. We can't take it no more, mm-hmm. you know? And and change has got to come and it's got to come now. Mm-hmm. So what we see now is all these calls to defund the what? The police. police. Get these fuckers out of our community. These are the same people that were hired. This job was made possible for them back in in the 17 1800s to capture runaway slaves right same damn same damn system as today understand that there because of last year and this all kind of people woke up when they saw that that demon put his knee on that brother's neck for eight minutes and take his life as he was calling for his mama. All kind of people woke up across this nation. All kind of people took to the streets and they had been seeing it because they saw it with Mike Brown and, you know, and other folks over the last 10 years, people had started waking up. So this call to defund the police and put that money into community programmings is definitely a movement that we can be proud to say that our energy has gone into and turned the tide. Mm. But understand that what that movement has caused is those same people who don't want to lose their jobs because mm-hmm. we talking about, we ain't talking about just defund the police. We talking about defund prisons. Mm-hmm. Why the hell would anybody be locked up for twenty years for a bag of my marijuana? Tell me. And you got white boys out here on the streets selling this shit and becoming wealthy behind mm-hmm. it. Yeah. So it isn't just defund the police. It's like. Do something about having all of these black folks locked up in jail. Mm-hmm. Stop it. Just just know. You know, that whole movement now is getting pushback. 
because these people see that there are a lot of people who feel this way mm-hmm. and who want change, logical change. How do you treat somebody who's got, you know, who's addicted to crack? Treat him like you would treat a white boy that was on meth. Oh, he has a problem. Mm-hmm. He's, you know, they, they ain't criminalizing them. They don't criminalize white boys who are on on cocaine, powder cocaine. Oh, well, you know, he has an addiction. Mm-hmm. And what we need to do is get him help. Well, that's the same damn thing we want for Lil Ray Ray, who is, you know, on crack. And Susie, who is on whatever the hell it is that she's on, we want the same type of treatment of being respect. Mm-hmm. We're being respectful to them and saying this is a problem that we need to get resolved. And we they don't need to be locked up. What they need is support. What they call wraparound services, right? Mm-hmm. That's education. If that's medicine. If that's. Uh, um, um, mental health services, if it's housing, if it's you see, I'm I'm about socialize everything, socialize everything, because that's what they do. That you were in the Netherlands, you saw how peaceful it was over there. Shoot, no, I got to tell you an experience. So I I didn't get to see it, but JT came home and told me. He said he was walking home, right? Walking home. It was it was just crazy here because like you know we're from America. If someone fires on the police, the police firing back. It mm-hmm. it was just crazy. See, he said he was walking home, drunk dude. It's New Year's, I think, and they're getting like they're just getting to a fight. The police like I, I, I don't I, I don't really remember this you know by heart or but I guess the police intervened. The guy like fired on the police officer, like hit him a couple times. Police officer was like, all right, okay. You done? Right. Like, he literally was just like, we, we good here now? Yeah. And, like, JT saw that and literally came home and was like, bro, I can't believe, like, this police officer just, like, just didn't do that. And I was like, bro, that's, it's normal here, but it, yes. over there it's like, yes, okay. Exactly. You got your anger out, like, we good here. Like, it, yeah. that's just crazy. Yes. But see, that that is a type of sanity we're fighting for here. That's the type of respect we're fighting for here. Mm-hmm. You you know, if I do something wrong, you have com- countries, I think it's Spain, not certain. You have countries. You shoot somebody in the middle of a fight, you murder this person, you get seven years. There ain't no lifetime. There ain't no 35. It's like science has proven that the majority of murders happen in a flash like that. Mm-hmm. And it's it's something that is like being temporarily insane for a moment. You can't even believe that this happened, mm-hmm. right? The courts understand this. The prosecution understands this. So we're going to lock you up because we need to make sure that you understand that anytime you get into something like this, you're going to have to back off or whatever. Yeah. But there is no life imprisonment. 
There is no 35 years. We have comrades from the Panther Party that they have accused of killing police with no evidence. As a matter of fact, evidence to the contrary, and they have been locked up for 45, 50 years. Wow. Right? Some of these folks, I mean, like, uh, let's look at Leonard Peltier. Here's a good example. Native American brother on his own damn reservation. The CIA, whatever, FBI, come rolling in. They trying to arrest some people off the res. And the brothers on the res saying, no, man, you ain't taking nobody. We have our own justice system here. So y'all need to back off. A fight ensues. Leonard has been sitting in jail for over 50, 50 years. Wow. Behind this altercation. So we have we have so many political prisoners. They got the nerve to talk about political prisoners in in Cuba when we have political prisoners here yeah. dating back to the sixties. That could have been Angela Davis. That could have been Bobby Seals. That could have been you know a number of the folks. That, look at look at uh what's the brother uh, Geronimo Pratt? Yeah, who was in jail for. 30, 40 years for some shit that they knew he didn't do. Right? So, yeah. We got, we, we, we are on, I, I, I absolutely love the energy that I see out of the youth. And more importantly, I like, I like the way that the youth are respectful to one another and they make space and room for everybody at the table. I like all that. I just say that this, you know, this fighting over who has the money and who and what they doing with it needs to stop. Mm. And we can put a halt to that. Yeah, for sure. So um, the young, you know, the, you said it, the, the younger people are you know taking charge now. And it, it's looking good. You know, I'm not saying you old, yeah, but you are. did... <laughs> Yeah, you yeah. did your fighting back then, <laughs> uh, and now you, you you're a bridge builder looking at the youth. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. What is your role as a black activist today? Is it being on the front lines? Is it teaching the youth? What what is it? What, yeah. what does it look like to it's you? A, it's it, it's all of that. It's all of that. When we when we were dusting it up with the Proud Boys out in Santa Monica, and they were trying to bust into our meeting and stuff. We had, there were like three or four rough-ass comrades from back in the day that held it down Mm -hmm. until the youth got there and and took over. You know, they trying to bust into the building, and you have um, me, Linda Bond, my little communist friend, um, oh, 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 the, um, the, the old white man that was on KPFK forever. Oh, Blaze Bon Bon Payne, who was like eighty something. Yeah, walking with a cane when he saw these young white boys trying to bust into our meeting, he just swiveled himself right on over to the door with his cane and blocked, blocked them, them from all. coming in. <laughs> okay, and I'm standing there holding the door. I'm yeah. in my 60s, mid-60s, right? Linda, who's a little bit older than me, holding down the door. So old folks have a place in this fight. 
mm-hmm. and they need and they know this. They need to be at their post, whatever their post is. That's what they need. That's what they need to be doing, and they need to be encouraging the young folks and 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 making room for them and and letting them know how absolutely beautiful and marvelous it is to see them out there doing this work mm. you know and 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 they and the young folks be lifting us up yeah. they be like everywhere i go is mama true mama Ch- yep <laughs> mama true you know and i got so old i can't even remember half of the names of people i'm like yeah baby it's so good to see you <laughs> you know but it's it's the love that is there is what's going to carry us through and the courage the courage i have seen these young people walk up into the face of poli- armed guards that got their little billy clubs out and these little 20 something year olds are walking up into their face talking about whose streets our streets okay mm-hmm. and walking right past them and the guards not doing nothing just going oh shit i ain't gonna yeah. attack no 20 <laughs> year old the 100 pound woman you mm-hmm. know so I and, and understand too, you know. There's always this discussion about where you know where allies should be and blah blah blah. I think this is where the young people have outthought the old heads from the sixties. They're like, okay, the allies can't be in every meeting. All right, that sometimes black folks need their own space mm-hmm. to decide what they're gonna do, make their plans. They don't need other folks who are not black helping them make them decisions. Mm -hmm. That's a smart-ass move. Smart-ass move. Yet, we need the allies. We must have them with us in order for us to move in a more powerful way, right? So they embrace the allies. They empower the allies to do whatever it is the allies feel that they need to do Mm -hmm. in order to get freedom. Right for their for for their uh, black and brown brothers and sisters. So I just say that what y'all are doing now is just it's like we were revolution 1.0, y'all 2.0 or 2.5. <laughs> y'all just uh, kicked it up a notch, and I appreciate that. Oh man, thank you so much, Nana. <laughs> thank you. That was you know. Because you already answered, you know, the last question, really, for real. So we're going we gonna to get into, you know, the hot question. So we almost done here. Oh. we almost done here, all right? Okay. So we're going to get into something, you know, I like to call. Yes, we are at the hot questions. These are the hot questions of the evening. Uh-uh. So these are questions that I'm just going to rattle off to you, and you just got to answer right on the top of your head. Okay. Are you ready? I'm ready. Okay, cool, cool. So this is a question I ask to almost all my participants in this podcast. If you had the opportunity to sit down with five people that are alive, who would it be? Go. Tony Morrison, Kwame Toure, uh, better known as Stokely Carmichael, Robert Goodwin, my dad, um uh and Cornell West. God damn. <laughs> <laughs> okay, okay, cool. Favorite activist. You know, the person could be black. 
blacktivists, and why? Stephen Biko, because he was a true liberation fighter for South Africa, that brother did not give a damn what anybody had to say about his liberation. He knew that he was going to stay true to that fight. It wasn't like he was trying to, you know, to um, assimilate and, create harmony and peace. No, it was like, number one, we got to get my free, my people free. And they murdered him for that. Mm. A young, beautiful, vibrant black man. Fidel Castro, because he took that little island nation that was run by thugs from America and there, making, you know, just, they were just dogging the people out in the fields and the sugar cane fields and all this, not giving them any kind of education. Fidel and and his friend Che ran off in there with a little ragtag army, took over the government, and within 10 years, 90% of the population was able to read and write. So, Fidel, hats off. I got to say, uh, Brother Amwar Gaddafi, Mm. who uh, had this magnificent plan for Africa, and to make Africa the richest continent in the world, and for that he was murdered. Let's not miss the, you know, people wanted, you can always tell if a person is damn near, I won't say every time, but damn near, if this U.S. government tries to make a person out to be some deranged madman that dresses weird and has weird ideas, Look into that individual further and deeper because there you're likely to find a leader. And that's what we had. Africa cried when they killed Gaddafi. We were the only people celebrating. Africa cried because that brother was talking about we're going to unite all this shit and we're about to get rich. So, okay. So, um, Amilcar Cabral who was the liberator of the small country in West Africa that our people come from. And it ain't just because he was a leader of Guinea-Bissau. It was because he was the one that freed Guinea-Bissau from uh, Western powers. And he was extraordinary, uh, just an extraordinary human being, engineer, um, an agriculturalist, um, a philosopher and a freedom fighter. So mm. that would those would be those would be my favorite. Okay, cool, cool, cool. Favorite musician. I know you, you love music. Tell me, who is my favorite musician? You bet not get it wrong. Don't 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 turn this podcast on me now. I you you the one. <laughs> There's a lot of people though. No, it's, I said musician. I say no. What, what, okay, you got to no. narrow it down. What's the genre? Everything. When you're talking about this woman, everything. Oh. This brother is wild. I'm trying to FaceTime you during here. You talk to that man after this. You know who just FaceTime me right now? Jeremiah. Oh. You know, you gotta talk to him after this. Um You said woman. And she does everything? Come on now. <sighs> I know who it is. Better. No, no I'm not even gonna say it. Just say it. 
No, 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 this is so funny. No, I just, I forgot her name, but I know who you always talk about her. I got, I got an old expression that old black folks say. I was born at night, Noah, but I wasn't born last night. Man, you don't. Okay, no, hold on, hold on, no, 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 no. I say it. I remember her name, Nina Simone. Yeah, come on now. There you go. Yeah, man. She was. She was always. uh, I knew that she was always sampled by No ID. I know that. So it was Nina Simone. Yeah, Nina Simone. I know. Nina Simone was critical. Was absolutely critical. She was like, I mean, refused, refused to be shut down. She was going to let you know that freedom for for black folks. Oh, her song. I wish I knew how it felt to be free. Badass ass song to be young, gifted, and black. Mm. Badass song, Mississippi. God damn. Okay, we talking about somebody who was revolutionary, who used her music to move the point on our liberation. So Nina first and foremost, high priestess of everything, and then in equal partnership, Nesda, Bob Marley, and Peter Tosh. Because okay. without Peter, you ain't got Bob. People, uh, you know, fight me on it. You know, don't fight me. Fight your mama. And, then, <laughs> um, and I don't know if folks know how critical Stevie Wonder has oh, been yeah. to the liberation. See, when you said, that's what I, that's what I thought you were talking about. It was either Bob Marley or, or Stevie Wonder. When you when you said woman, I said, oh, hold on here. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Stevie yeah, Wonder, the, that, that guy. Yeah. Yeah. So that. That does it. Those does are, it those are my folks. Okay. Yeah. All right. All right. All right. So favorite traits from all your grandkids. That's interesting. Well, actually, just do one because, you know, we, we, we on time right now. So one of your one favorite trait from each of your grandkids. Okay. I can do that. Uh, my favorite trait in you would be harder to pin down because Noah, the way that you view things is just visionary. It's just so far out there. I see you as being the visionary of this family. You make a way out of no way and you make it seem easy. And I know it's not, you know, so you're my visionary. Um, Sandy is our cultural icon. That sister knows everything from art and fashion to music to, you know. Yeah, she knows a lot. <laughs> she knows a lot. She's a cultural art icon for sure. Jay is our, you know, that, that's, our, that's our minister of, of, of politics and, and, and rightness and, and action and shit. You know, Jay is on the front line every day trying to make it possible uh, black folks to work. Mm-hmm. Um, and Mario, oh my God, just that smooth ass energy of his that just sort of envelops everything that comes his way. He's just, he's just got a way of bringing everybody into the circle. So, mm-hmm. yeah. K Dot. Oh, yeah. Don't forget about K Dot. And then there's. Campster, yeah, don't forget K Dot. The campster, the campster <laughs> is a quiet storm, boy. Yeah, me, <laughs> he is a quiet storm. 
You know, he just be waiting back in the cut for somebody to come for him. And then he going to lay you out. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah I, I argue with him every day. We got into it this morning, man. I, it was so funny. I got him a little poster. You know, I, I gave it to him. And he like, he, you know him. He's just so straightforward. He like, I don't even know any of these people on this poster you just gave me. That's yours now. I said, all right, cool. That's cool, you know. I gave him, you know, a good people sweater, you know, that Jeremiah got him, so yeah, he was yeah, happy. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, you know, you yeah, can't forget yeah. about K-Dot. You Not know, at all. God love him. Not at all. So what is one thing you have passed down to your children? It doesn't have to be money. It doesn't have to be a, a physical thing. It could be, you know, Norman said God. You know, in the second episode, he said he passed down. He would pass down God to his kids. What have uh, you passed down to you to your children? Yeah, well, you tell me. I and you better get this one right too. You better get this one right. What have I passed down to y'all? Shit, a lot. <laughs> you gave me some Tommy boxes in my sophomore year of high school. I remember that. I was like, damn, Nana, you did me good. You got me some Tommy boxes. Okay. Um, we ain't even we ain't even gonna talk about how hood I get about making sure that these people have money in their pockets. I'm just straight up. They said when you know they got some little some little uh, game on TikTok that says, "When did you know that your mama? When when did you first know that your mama or your daddy was a gangster?" That's a question I want the every one of these kids to ask about me because I when it comes to them. I'm just going to let the world know I'm a gangster. There's very, very little that I will not do. I've even thought about the fact I'm, you know, however old I am, bet not nobody stepped to none of these kids wrong because I don't mind taking them out. I'm I'm old enough to go to jail and, and be okay with it. Mm-hmm. You know, most of my life is over, but okay. But I, I'll say one thing you passed down to us, uh, to be real, okay. I'm going to say resilience. Oh, okay. If you really t- think about it, Mom don't take shit from nobody. Yeah. Damn, Unc, uh, Unc ain't taking shit from nobody. He's crazy. Even <laughs> <laughs> Jeremiah ain't taking no shit from nobody. Yeah. He, he, you, you think that little girl in our room over there gonna take some shit from somebody? No, I don't. Oh, yeah. You know, Bear. Bear, Mario. He, he, yeah. 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 He looks like man. a... Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, we have... We keep... We keep the handcuffs ready just in case somebody piss you off. No, we, you know, I know. I, I know. I know. Yeah. I would, I would say the, the recognition that freedom ain't free and that if we going to get free and, and more importantly, if we going to stay as free as we are, because you see what they're doing in Georgia. They're trying to stop them people from voting, right? Yeah. So we have to not only fight to get our freedom, we have to fight to keep the freedom we have. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That, that's definitely what you brought down to us. It would, yeah, you answered it right. This is actually the end of the podcast. You, 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 that's crazy, right? Hour and 10. That, that's real smooth. So I asked this to all my participants, guests, rate this podcast scaling from 1 to 10. Oh, well, this is a 10 plus. This was a 10 plus. And I've been on some shows now, you know. Mm-hmm. I'm old enough to have been on some shows. But I absolutely loved how seamless this interaction, this conversation was. Thank you so much. For sure. You know, I, I really appreciate you coming on here. 
Not even just as my grandma, but as one of the strongest people. Shit, probably the strongest person I know. She's still fighting today, y'all. She going right after this. She gonna start fighting. <laughs> That's the funny part. She she laughing because you know it's true. As soon as we I press stop, she gonna be like, "All right, Noah, I'm gonna take this headphone off. You get all packed up. Take your mama over there, and when I'm get back on that computer. I'm gonna start emailing some motherfuckers." <laughs> <laughs> she know. So I really I really appreciate you for coming on here, Nana. You know I love you with all my heart. Thank you so Such much for honor. coming on here. Such an honor. Thank for you. sure. That's it. Bread of salt is done. Peace.